If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to give you a word on fear and evangelism. And I'll say this up front, that fear can either be crippling to you or it can be empowering. It just depends on who you fear. If you fear man, you'll almost always be prevented from doing God's will and reaching others for Jesus. If you fear God and if you fear only God, you'll be fearless, empowered, and emboldened to win a world for Jesus Christ. Amen? Before we get into that discussion on fear, I want to read Matthew 10, verses 1 through 8. I want to give you a little bit of context as we do so. Everyone there in your Bibles. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you do, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you receive, freely give. We're going to stop right there. I want to give you some background to what Jesus is doing here. He's sending his disciples out on a short-term local mission trip. And if you're taking notes, you can jot it down that it's these two things. It's a short-term local mission trip. And I want to contrast this to the sending out of the Great Commission. Everyone knows the Great Commission, yeah? Matthew chapter 28, go Make disciples of all nations, Mark 16, 15 and onward. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Amen. So I want to contrast it to the Great Commission because when Jesus sent them out, he did send them to the ends of the earth. Let's take Peter, for example. I want to give you perspective here. Peter is a Jewish man born and raised in Galilee. And if you know a little bit about Galilee, it's a little podunk town, a little backwater town. He's a fisherman. It's, that's the main trade over there. And guess where he spent his last days? Anyone want to take a jab at it? Yes. Jail. What city? He spent it in Rome. Amen. He spent his last days in the city of Rome, the capital, the Roman Empire, this huge metropolis, this pagan uh, empire. And not only was it a long distance geographically, but culturally, it was a very different world. Let's take another look. Let's take a look at Thomas, another one of the disciples. And he spent his last days in India, and he was martyred there for preaching the gospel. Again, Thomas, a Jewish man, spent his whole life in these parts. And not only did he die a very long distance from the place he grew up, but it was a very different culture, different religion, different language, different people, different climate, different everything, all right? Matthew 10 is not like that. He's not sending them halfway across the world. Amen? He's not sending them on a boat somewhere far away. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He's saying, Thomas, don't go to India yet. It's not your time. Peter, hold your horses, buddy. You're not going to Rome yet. We have lost sheep right here. And you've got to think of the ramifications of this, by the way. These were communities. Jesus says in verse 23 of this chapter, referring to the towns of Israel, these were communities that the disciples probably grew up in. When they were out there preaching, they probably were preaching to people they grew up with, people they've 
uh, done business with, people they went to school with, friends and family members. And friend, I've been to five Puerto Rican fests, and I've met several people I grew up with, went to school with, friends and acquaintances. We went to the Rib Fest last year, and I ran into an old smoking buddy, and then an old drinking buddy right after that. So I know what it is to preach in a local context, and I'm preaching to my own people, amen? That's how real it is for the disciples. So he's saying, you don't have to go halfway across the ocean. The lost sheep are right here. Now, mind you, we're in Matthew chapter 10, but if you read the end of Matthew chapter 9, don't have to flip there, verses 36 through 38, Jesus looks on the crowds around him. He doesn't look at a world map. He doesn't look at those programs on television where they urge you to sponsor children in Africa and those things. But it says he looks on the crowds, the people in his immediate context, and he has compassion on them because he sees them as lost sheep, harassed, and helpless. Are you getting where I'm going with this? He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. He tells his disciples, go to your own community. Go to your own neck of the woods. The people need you here. You don't have to go halfway across the world to reach a lost person. Amen? I want to make this applicable to us. I want to give a little illustration. How many have heard of a staycation? In our economy, people want to take vacations, but inevitably they take staycations. You want to take your kids to uh, Orlando, Florida, Disneyland, but you can't afford it, so you stay home and take them to Six Flags, you know? You want to take your wife to Paris, but, you know, money's tight, so you just take her downtown for a show or you take her to a nice restaurant. You stay home. The point is, though, you set apart that same time for fun and relaxation with your family. What it goes to demonstrate is you don't have to get on a plane to have that time. Amen? You don't have to spend that money to have that time. And the same thing applies to ministry in the Christian life. Now, I think many of you may have dreams of going to Africa and hugging every African child you see and digging wells. And then while you're at it, you're going to go to Nepal and fight human trafficking. And you're going to be Superman or Superwoman for Jesus. And I don't want to crush anyone's dreams here. If God has put it on your heart to do foreign missions, then go for it. He'll see it through. However, I'll, I'm, sp I'm speaking the truth here. Many of you will never, ever set foot on the foreign mission field. Some of you will never get farther from your home than Wisconsin Dells, all right? And that's okay. That's okay. Why? Because there's lost souls here. We think of the Hindu religion, prominent in India, 300 million gods. But do you need to go to India to find an idol worshiper? Come on. We may not have statues and trinkets and shrines and incense and all these things that they have. And th we may even think they're silly for it. But I'll tell you what I heard a preacher say recently. Basketball is a great sport, but it's a terrible religion. Come on. It's a great sport, but it's a terrible religion. And if you put your hoop dreams in LeBron James or whoever and, the, and your hope and your joys in him, he becomes an idol to you. Football season rolls around. Many games are on Sundays. If you miss church but you never miss a game, it becomes an idol to you. It becomes foot bail. So how, how many Old Testament scholars got that? Come on. Foot bail. Help us, Jesus. We have idol worshipers, young people, teenagers, and 20-somethings in these obsessive, clingy relationships. For a girl, this guy becomes her idol. For a guy, this girl becomes his idol, and they live and die by how that other person feels about them, and they don't have the love of Jesus in their hearts. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Who are you voting for this November? Come on. And if you place the hope of yourself and your family and future generations, your community and your country in, in a person or a platform or a policy or a political party, come on, you're putting that, that person, uh, policy, platform, or political party in the place of Jesus. Come on. Because Jesus is your Savior. Jesus the Savior of the nations. Amen. Jesus is the one who's going to keep your family. 
Listen, we all had all this talk in 2008 about Barack Obama bringing hope and change. Let me ask you, has Barack Obama ever wiped your tears at night? Has he ever come into your room and cuddled with you and spooned you in bed and made you feel better when things were bad? Has he put money in your wallet when you were broke? That's debatable. I'm not going to get into politics, but that's idolatry. Government over God. Help us, Lord. So we don't need to go halfway across the world to meet idol worshipers. Friends, Chicago has plenty of them. If you want to meet a Muslim, go to Devon Avenue. If you want to meet a Jew, go to Skokie near where I live. All right? You have a burden for Jews, you don't have to go to Brooklyn, New York. They're right here. You have a burden for lost, exploited children. Human trafficking is predominant in Nepal. One of the churches we're, we're partnered with is in Nepal. And there's some dear people laboring for Jesus out there. But, friend, you don't have to go to Nepal to minister to lost, exploited children. We pick them up on the west side every Wednesday. One of the girls we pick up has been raped. And this is not an abnormality in these communities. Molestation, perversion, more young men that are uh, going, being dead or in jail than graduating college. Come on. More children in those communities being born to unwed mothers than to married couples. More pregnancies, 61% of pregnancies in African-American communities end in abortion than come to full term. It's right here, friend. It's in your own backyard. And that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. You don't have to go to them just yet. The lost sheep are right here. They're your friends. They're your family. They're all around you. And so... I want you guys just to get this, and why would I believe Jesus was teaching his disciples? Every day is a mission trip. We may have the Puerto Rican Fest every Father's Day weekend, but friend, every day is a mission trip. By the way, Chris Vitale and his wife, they lead up evangelism to Wicker Park every Saturday. A mission trip every Saturday, amen? I lead it up on Fridays to Logan Square. A mission trip every Friday. When you're on the train to work, it's a mission trip. When you're at Walmart, when you're anywhere you go, it's a mission trip. It's the mission field. Because every day you bear the message of reconciliation. Every day you encounter lost people without the light of God, and you have the light of God. Amen? Every day people need hope, and you have the gospel of hope. Come on. Every day people are depressed, busted, and disgusted, and you have the gospel that brings them joy unspeakable and full of glory. Come on. Every day people are, are sin sick, and they're going to hell without Jesus, and you have their only means of salvation. Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life. And then he went on to say, my word abides in you. And you have what people need, friend. So why do we hold it back? Because we were referencing Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Why are the workers so few? Why do so few Christians evangelize? Praise God for all of you that are here. But the fact is, by and large, Christians never, ever share their faith. Help us, Lord. The workers indeed are few. Why is it? I've narrowed it down to two reasons. I won't preach too much on the first reason. I felt led more to preach on the second reason. I'll tell you why in a second. There's two reasons Christians don't evangelize. The first one is apathy. The second one is fear. Apathy says I don't give a rip or a flip about God, the kingdom of God, the things of God, lost people, heaven, hell, eternity. I care about me, 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 my four and no more, my dinner party, my, my sporting event. Uh, is the cheese and the nachos hot? You get more upset over the cheese on the nachos than you do about lost people. Come on, going to hell without Jesus. And friend, not a lot of Christians or churchgoers would actually say this, but their actions and attitudes reflect this. 
And friend, that's not the heart of God. And if you have any of that, if you even have a hint of that, you need to repent this morning. But I feel like many of you are beyond that. You're in a place like, man, uh, I know God is good. I know people need Jesus. And your prayer is every day, God, use me. And somehow or another, you don't get used. You meet somebody like you feel like the Holy Ghost is leading you and you just get all awkward and you think too much and you don't say anything and you wish you did and you regret it. How many know what I'm talking about? How many how many have those missed opportunities? I have them too, friend. I'm not pointing one finger at you because there's three pointed back at me. Come on. So with that in mind, I want to address fear mainly. And praise God, in the same context here, Jesus addresses fear. Let's skip ahead in Matthew 10 to verse 16. He gives some other instructions not to take various items and to stay at certain people's houses. But we want to get what's relevant to this discussion. Matthew 16, I'm going to read uh, 10, 16. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here, so just pretend I'm the audio Bible. Amen. Jesus said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry. Everyone say, do not worry. About what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So don't be afraid of them. Remember, say, don't be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim in the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Let's stop right there. First thing I want to address is the fear of man. Jesus addresses the fear of man in saying that as you go out to your own neck of the woods and to your own people, you will face opposition and conflict. Categorically speaking, he said you would have comp, uh, opposition with the with religious establishments. Religious people will get mad at you, okay? They'll get fired up to see someone on fire for Jesus. He said you would get it from the government and secular institutions. And he said your own friends and family would be the ones who turn on you. How many know that's painful? How many have ever been discouraged from serving Jesus by family members? How many have ever been threatened for serving Jesus by family members? All right. Come on. I mean, we don't see honor killings in the Islamic world when when a, a brother or a father of a young lady will actually kill her in order to remove the disgrace of his family of having a Christian. We see a handful of that in the States, mostly in the Islamic world. 
But by and large, we don't experience that. But I've been disowned by family. I've been discouraged by family. I've been told I give too much money to the church. I've been told I need to lighten up on my, uh, on my stances on things like same-sex marriage, abortion, and the like, religious pluralism. They don't want me to think Jesus is the only way. Well, well what am I supposed to believe? Come on. So it comes from all directions. Religious people will get mad at you, even people who profess Jesus. And listen, I've stood on corners and had religious people say, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus doesn't hate people. Jesus wouldn't preach like this. And I say, friend, if you want to preach your gospel, you go on that corner and preach your gospel. I'm going to preach my gospel right here, the one Jesus taught me. Come on. And you're going you're gonna to find that out here. You're going to find some religious um, stiffs, for lack of better words. You're going to find some religious stiffs who hate that you're on fire for Jesus because they're so cold. Come on. And in the larger context, I would give you some background, but of course, uh, there's a lot of opposition from Islam. And believe it or not, the Roman Catholic Church throughout history has killed a lot of Christians for their faith. So Jesus was prophesying that as he said it. And then he said the government and, and the secular institutions, and there's just a, a lot of it comes in ideas, in the form of ideas. And people think you're stupid, you're hateful, you're bigoted, you're regressive, and they have all these buzzwords, and they want to typecast you as an old dinosaur who doesn't know anything about the real world. Friend, this book is changing lives. It's changed lives for the past 2,000 years. Friend, look up at this book. This book is the hope of nations. It tells us about God, tells us who Jesus is, tells us how we must be saved. People in atheist countries such as China are picking up this book and their lives are being changed and they'll die based on the testimony of this book. Don't tell me this book isn't relevant. This book shaped our Western civilization, the Holy Bible, amen? So we get it from government, from secular people, and that can discourage us and that can keep us from trying and that can keep us... You, you might be, you know, love Jesus, you might pray, you might go to church, but you never really speak up about your faith. But I want to ask you a question, because Jesus said, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, what will they call the members of his household? And the question is, if fear of man is keeping you from evangelizing, are you more willing to offend Jesus than you're willing to offend people who hate Jesus? I'm going to say that again. Are you more willing to offend Jesus than you're willing to offend people who hate Jesus? Listen, I love my mother, all right? And if I hung out with you and you cussed out my mother and you called her up on the phone and, and prank called her and you played ding-dong ditch on my mom and you just offended and disgraced her, I would take issue with that, amen? Now, if you don't have nice things to say about my Lord, if you want to live a lifestyle that's continually offensive to my Lord, I'm going to speak up. I'm not going to pretend everything's okay, amen? Are we more willing to offend Jesus, then we're willing to offend people who hate Jesus. In John chapter 15, verses 18 and onward, he goes on a discourse. And in a nutshell, he's saying, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Okay? It hated Jesus first. They killed him. Do you remember that? They crucified him. All right? And they said, if you belong to the world, the world would love you. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. You belong to me, and the world hates you because the world hates me, and the world hates me because it does not know the Father who sent me. Those are strong words, friend. Think of the inferences of that. Now, you might go to church, you might pray, you might read your Bible, but does the world love you too much? Are you content to, to cuddle up when it comes to the marketplace of ideas, and there's debates about religion, and there's debates about the sanctity of life? 
and there's debates about the definition of marriage, and you just keep your mouth shut for fear of offending men. And you have the opportunity to preach the gospel and be a witness for Jesus, but you don't because you don't want to rile up anyone's feathers. Come on. You're not loving Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And he commanded us to be deliberate and intentional about sharing our faith, standing up for righteousness, rebuking unrighteousness. Does the world love us too much? Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my heavenly father. Come on. I want to read a quote to you. Dr. Michael Brown wrote this in his book, It's Time to Rock the Boat. And I wanted to share it. I think it gets the essence of it. He said this, remember, the world hated Jesus. He made people uncomfortable. He exposed sin. He rebuked unrighteousness. He would not compromise. He would not hold back. Why should it be any different for us? He was rejected. We want to be respected. He was regarded as radical. We want to be respected as reasonable. He was accused of having demons. We are acclaimed for having degrees. He was put out. We long to be taken in. He put no stock in the praise of man. We thrive on it. Is it any wonder we make so little impact here for him? But praise be to God, Jesus gave us some practical application to guard against the fear of man, to guard against sissying out when it comes to preaching the gospel and standing up for what you believe in. Jesus said in verse 17, be on your guard against men. But he says in verses 26 and 28, don't be afraid of men. Everyone say, be on your guard. But don't be, afraid. don't be afraid. And then he adds in verse 19, don't worry. Amen? Be on your guard against men. When you're out there, you want to use common sense wisdom. Amen? You don't want to be a meddler. Ladies, if you see a naked man doing jumping jacks, stay far away from him. If you see some young guys just running for dear life, and then you see another group of young guys running behind them, don't chase after them and see what they're doing. Stay out of that. Don't be a meddler. Don't be obnoxious and point your finger in people's faces and call them sinners and just be on it. And then when they get mad at you, have persecution syndrome. I'm suffering for Jesus. And you're just showing what a sinner you are by being angry at me. Just as this persecution syndrome. Be on your guard against men. Look, persecution will come if you follow Jesus. If you do the things Jesus did and preach the message Jesus preached, you will eventually get the reaction Jesus got. So persecution will come. Trouble will come, but you're not inviting it. You're not looking for it, amen? You be on your guard against men, but don't be afraid of men, Jesus said. He said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. How many, again, how many have been threatened with death for preaching the gospel? Now, I've been out there on the streets. I've had people yell at me. I've had people want to fight my wife. I don't know about you, but I feel safer around my wife, by the way. <laughs> I just one of those guys, but she's a good woman, and she, she preaches the gospel fearlessly. They'll yell at you. They'll, they'll call you this and that. But what, who cares? It's just their, their foolish, godless opinions. They'll call you names. They'll call you hypocrites. They'll call you a, a Jesus freak. Who cares? And we haven't been threatened with death. We're not threatened with, with beatings and these different things. What are we going to do out there? 99% of the time, if people don't talk to you, if you don't get a positive response, the response you will get is, no thanks, I'm busy. That's it. Some variation of no thanks, I'm busy, or no thanks, I'm good, or thank you, I'm good. That's it. What are you afraid of? And even if they did kill you, don't you believe in heaven? And don't you trust that God knows when it's your time to go? Come on. 
we got to trust God more. The fear of man is lacking a trust in God. And I want to give some bottom lines here. He says, be on your guard, but don't be afraid. And then the third thing is don't worry. And he says specifically, don't be afraid of what you will say. Some of you are thinking too much about what you, you're going to say, and it's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from the Holy Ghost. All you got to do is put yourself in front of somebody, wave at them, smile, and say, hi, can I talk to you? And I guarantee you the Holy Ghost will do the rest. Come on. Because, listen, you can't cure a cold. You can't save tonight's dinner for leftovers. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the healer. Amen? It's his word, not yours. And if you're sharing your testimony, you're only telling what God has done and what God will do for them. God is the one who's going to do it. Have trust in God. Don't fear man. There's some bottom lines I want to get out of the fear of man. Three things you want to write these down. If fear of man keeps you from preaching, it means this. Number one, that you fear what man thinks of you or what man might do to you. Number two, that you would rather please man than to please God. Another way of saying it is that you love the praise of man more than the praise of God. And number three, you love your own life more than the gospel. And we have people who decline invitations to this event because they're afraid of the Puerto Ricans. Help us, Jesus. Come on, they're, they love their lives more than the gospel. Jesus said, lose your life for me, you'll find it. If you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Amen? Three things. I'm going to repeat those for everyone's note-taking. If fear of man keeps you from evangelizing, it means three things. You fear what man thinks of you or a man might do to you. You love to please man more than you love to please God. And number three, you love your own life more than the gospel. I'm going to let those settle with you. So what's the deterrent to fearing man? What's the deterrent to spiritual paralysis and being prevented from preaching the gospel when you know it's the thing to do, when you know it's right? The best deterrent to the fear of man is the fear of God. Amen? I want to share with you a few quotes to introduce this topic. John Wesley said, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I'll shake the world. And for the purpose of this sermon, we could say who fear nothing but God and desire nothing but God. But you get the point. They would shake the world. If we feared God only. D.L. Moody would say, the world has not yet seen what it looks like when a man is completely yielded to God. Will you be yielded to God? William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, and before it was a thrift store, it was an evangelistic movement in London, late 1800s. Powerful movement. They were reaching the worst of the worst for Jesus, and people were getting saved. And William Booth said, the, the one thing that he wishes he could do to train his men would be to dangle them over hell for one hour before he sent them out by a single thread because he knew they would see things differently and they would live differently. Jude, verses uh, 22 and 23 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Think urgency, snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And I love the King Jim version on 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. God will terrorize sinners on the day of his judgment. Jesus is coming on a white horse. He's got a sword. He's going to be dripping with blood. He's going to slaughter the wicked, godless multitudes who have rebelled against him. And you don't want your friends and family in that number, do you? 
You don't want the folks in Ohio Park in that number, do you? Now remember, Jesus said, verse 28 of Matthew 10, our original text, don't fear him who can, don't fear the man who can destroy the body only, but can't touch the soul, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. God has that power over life. He gave everyone life and has the power to take life. I want to take you all actually back to 2 Corinthians. I quoted Paul a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, just to give you an idea here. There will be a, a judgment for both believers and non-believers, by the way. The Bible says it, Jesus says it, Matthew 25, Paul teaches at 1 Corinthians 3 that what we do for Christ will be shown for what it is, whether it's worthless or whether it's valuable. And some people will be saved, but only passing through a fire. How many want to be saved like that, all smoky and dusty? Come on. How many want to stand before Jesus and be saved, but full of regret? Come on. How many want to stand before Jesus, but have hands dripping with blood for people you didn't reach? Because he said there's blood on your hands. Because I put you in front of them, and you didn't say nothing. You didn't warn them. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And then verse 11, as I was reading earlier, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade Men And he goes on to say, we are God's ambassadors, urging men, be reconciled to God. He says, knowing the terror, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And that was in light of the judgment seat. Paul was living in light of the judgment seat. He understood if he was talking to a sinner or an unbeliever, he said, look, friend, you're going to stand before God, and so am I. And 1 Peter 1.17 says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. When you stand before God, it will be bare naked facts. What did you do with the truth? Impartially. I know I'm a good looking guy, but my good looks will not help me before the judgment seat. You can buddy up to people. You can cozy up to people. You can manipulate. You can play power games here on earth, but you will not do it with God. You could politic on earth, but you can't do it with God. He will judge each man's work impartially. And he says in light of that, live with reverent fear. So God will play back the clip of your life and the opportunities you had to speak in his name. And this could apply to so many things, but with regard to evangelism, all the folks you could have reached and how distracted you were. You were on your phone. You were on Facebook. And this guy next to you on the bus, he, he, was, commit, he was contemplating suicide. You don't know. You don't have urgency. You, you don't have a Holy Ghost antenna. You're too distracted. Too self-centered, too, too wrapped up and absorbed in yourself to care about the person next to you or the person in front of you. Heidi Baker, founder of Iris Ministries, planted 5,000 churches in Mozambique. She said revival is the face in front of you. And friend, God will judge you. He said that could have been revival there. That could have been revival there. That could have been revival there. I, I put that person there for you, friend. Come on. Help us, Lord. Paul understood we would both, as believers and non-believers alike, stand before Christ and be judged for our works. And there's some verses that make me wonder 
like Matthew 25, where the wicked and lazy servant is, is tossed. He's bound hand and foot with the, with the darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We understand that to be hell. I know we're saved by grace through faith, but these scriptures, they give me a very, uh, a very scary warning. Jesus said, I will deny you if you deny me. There's another part, Matthew 7. He says there's going to be a day, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that, but I never knew you depart from me. Come on. And listen, guys, I don't fear hell necessarily, but I do fear God. I don't fear that if I have a bad day or if I do miss an opportunity to preach at some time or if I mess up here or there, that I'm going to go to hell and God's going to stop loving me. That's not what I'm afraid of, but I do fear God because I will stand before him. And he's going to judge my work in parson. My life will be shown for what it is. If you guys could turn with me, 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. It starts with us. We will be judged. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Come on. If we'll stand before Christ and have our works judged impartially, how bad will it be for people who don't have that forgiveness, who have every single sin counted against them? Yours is a judge of works. Theirs is a judge of sins. Are you with me? There's a contrast here. You're judged for the things you did and didn't do, but they're judged for their sins. Our sins are under the blood. Their sins are not. Do you understand urgency? Do you understand people will be lost forever, separate from God? Leonard Ravenhill would say, if you could just spend five minutes in eternity and come back, you would, you would one, you would weep. With so much regret. Oh the things I could have done. I should have prayed more. I should have gave more. I should have sacrificed more. I should have told more people about Jesus. I should have wept more. It should have been more important to me. I realize. Just how pitiful what I was going after. And friend you really need to check your heart. If we don't fear God. And if we fear man. It's a heart issue. We're distracted. Jesus said where your treasure is. Your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Where's your focus in life? What's important to you? If we could just get some music going, I want you all to respond in prayer, just in that heart of prayer. Again, five minutes in eternity. I want to leave you with that thought. Five minutes in eternity. Five minutes having seen the glory of God, the destruction of sinners, and the glory of the saints in heaven. What would be different? What would you do differently? How would you think differently? How would you see differently? Are you fearing man a little too much? Are you loving the world a little too much? And does the world love you a little too much? Do you not fear God enough? Do you not believe who he is? Do you not trust God enough or believe that he's faithful? Everyone just take the next few moments where you are in prayer before the Lord. Let him speak to your heart. Let him minister to your heart.